I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. And again, listeners, please give us any recommendations. Shoot us a thought or a note, and if you have a book recommendation. But for episode 27, we read Grand New Party by Ross Douthat and Raihan Salam from 2008. Ross Douthat was born in 1979 in San Francisco, California, and grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. As an adolescent, the Episcopalian Douthat converted to Pentecostalism, and then, with the rest of his family, to Catholicism at the age of 17. He graduated from Harvard University in 2002. After college, he worked as a writer, becoming a senior editor for The Atlantic. His 2005 book, Privilege, Harvard, and the Education of the Ruling Class, was acclaimed in conservative circles. In 2009, he joined the New York Times editorial page with a regular column that he still publishes 10 years later. Raihan Salam was also born in 1979 in Brooklyn, the son of Muslim Bangladeshi immigrants. He attended Stuyvesant High School in New York and Cornell University before transferring to Harvard, where he graduated in 2001. He began his career as a reporter and a researcher at the New Republic before taking on a job editing and researching at the New York Times. Salam became an editor at The Atlantic and a producer for The Chris Matthews Show on NBC. After working at the National Review, earlier this year, he was selected to become the new president of the Manhattan Institute. All right. Douthat and Salam come from what I call the compassionate conservative wing of conservatism. And like Charles Murray, they're focused on the working class and how to help the working class. And this book jumps down into the details of the policy prescriptions that they have that are aimed at helping the working class. And uh, of course, we'll discuss several of those uh, proposals today, but I wanted to flag at the outset uh, what we mean by compassionate conservatism. Uh, I view it as a more or less a liberal disposition for government problem solving to solve problems using government policy. But these guys argue for conservative means in order to solve those problems. And that is to say, they propose conservative policies to serve their problem solving ends, you know, use, using market forces and that sort of thing. And so I tend to view this book as almost an intellectual heir to the Irving Crystals of the world, you know, the original neoconservatives who believed in a government that could make society better, but they argue for free market solutions facilitated by government policy, you know, as opposed to government takeovers or redistribution of wealth, which it would be the more liberal answers. Does that sound about right, Cal? I think so, yeah. I think there's a lot of overlap with what we discussed a few weeks ago in Charles Murray's book. I think they, they see some of the causes, as we'll get into, some of the causes of society's problems the same way Murray sees them. And that seemed to be the focus of Douthat's first book also, sort of the, the separation of the elite ruling class from the rest of America, the divergences in social patterns that lead to problems and yeah they see they see a role for government in fixing it and i think that's um it's sort of a if you ever see that um there was a study that came out after the 2016 election and uh, if you know that that political quadrant kind of mm. graph about where people land yes. where it's economic on one axis and social on the other you know like the democratic party tends to be in the bottom left quadrant where it's economically liberal and socially liberal and then the opposite, Republicans up in the top right quadrant of economically conservative and socially conservative. But this this big survey asked a lot of people where they fall on this, and there's a there's very few in that that libertarian bottom right where it's economically what we call conservative and socially liberal. It's basically me alone. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of in there myself most of the time, although I don't even know anymore. But but that top left is another underserved constituency. And there are a lot of what we think of as these kind of folks who are economically uh, conservative. They don't want big government running everything, but they also um, 
or rather they don't want government running everything, but they also see a role for government in directing society in a socially conservative direction. So, I mean, that kind of makes them the way we define it economically liberal in, in the sense of not libertarian. Mm -hmm. And I think I'll put the, I'll put the, uh, the graph up. It was in the New York magazine in 2017. I'll put it up when we, uh, when we post this show, there's a lot of people in there right. and a lot of them voted for Trump. But I think as Douthat and Salam talk about in their introduction, these are people that the Republican policies often appeal to. They're, they want to get ahead. They believe in the American dream. They don't want government handouts necessarily, although they're not really as hostile to them as, as more libertarian folk are. But then there's also a lot in the Republican platform that kind of turns these people off. These are these are Reagan Democrats, Nixon Democrats, um, Trump Democrats, mm -hmm. you know, who we, we get from time to time when we have a leader at the top of the ticket who speaks to them. And then we lose them again. And uh, I think a lot of what, what these guys are talking about here is how do you keep these people? How do you make life better for them? How do you deliver to this pretty large constituency in America? Um, the blue collar conservatives, you know, how do, how do you, how do you help these folks in a way that is conservative and that will actually, you know, serve them and their interests while keeping them from going back to their ancestral roots in the democratic party? Yeah. I found that graph hugely, hugely insightful when it came yeah, out. Yeah, me too. So I hope listeners will click on the link that, that you put up. But what's really interesting too is that almost all the Hillary voters, like you said, are in that um, bottom left quadrant, the economically liberal, socially liberal. But the Trump voters, they spanned that top section, both the left and the right. So you have, they're all socially conservative, but not you know, it's about half and half are economically conservative versus economically more liberal. And I, I call those folks that you just described as kind of the George W. Bush, big government conservatives, or like, you know, the Reagan Democrats, like you said, it's kind of a combo of those. Mm -hmm. And so. Yeah. The compassionate conservative. Yeah. yeah compassionate it, conservative. it seems like there's different names with each election, but it's, there's definitely a, a group. Yeah. Yeah. And so who are they? Well, last uh, when we talked the Charles Murray book, we went through a lot of this. What's the working class? And more specifically, we're, we're really talking about white working class, although in this book, they don't specify that. But but so what is it? He's, they say non-college voters make up roughly half of the U.S. electorate. And they've transformed the GOP into the party of what they call the Sam's Club. So they're, they're going to call this group the Sam's Club Republicans that flip back and forth. They've, they've voted for Republicans. They voted for Democrats. You know, they, they were f behind Bill Clinton. You know, they voted for Reagan. Many of them voted for Obama. Now many voted for Trump and they specify that this working class cohort, they are not poor. They're just, they're middle-class and they have, they have jobs they're more likely to work in education, healthcare, or business services is what they say, rather than manufacturing. And that's what we have in mind. Like all, all union people must be in manufacturing. Well, no, I mean, they're in a lot of different, different industries, but the working class is defined less by income and more by wealth. Cause again, they're not poor. Uh, I'm sorry, less by income and wealth than by education because they're not poor. It's just that they're probably didn't go to college or maybe they went to a little bit of college. And so where they agree with the Republicans generally, when they vote Republican, it's on issues like affirmative action, crime, national security, sexual permissiveness, they say, and the culture war. Because again, as Kyle described, you know, that the top part of the quadrant is all social conservatives. It's just some of them are more or less economically conservative. Where they tend to agree with the Democrats when they do, it's on kitchen table issues like healthcare, college affordability, economic insecurity and what we mean by that is basically like being able to pay your bills and and having confidence that if the car breaks down you can you have a little bit of extra money to to go pay for it to get fixed and economic mobility meaning you know maybe for yourself or probably mo even more so for your your kids to be able to move up the economic ladder yeah i think that that mobility is even maybe the bigger piece of of the two between 
insecurity. And I mean, we talked about economic insecurity a lot in the 2016 election and that's, but they're kind of of a piece, you know, I mean, if you, things are a little more maybe chaotic than in our parents' generation, people don't have the same job for life very often. People don't live in the same town for life as often. Um, that's, I think people can deal with that if, if you see that as, as part of the ladder toward greater prosperity, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 Americans have always been the people that moved around. I mean, we settled this whole continent in, you know, for, I mean, from independence to the closing of the frontiers, 120 years, we spread all across these 3000 miles between the oceans. And that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty mobile compared to the places our various ancestors came from, but they were doing that because they thought, you know, if I, yeah, if I move West, I mean, I have to uproot my life and it's going to be weird, but you know, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a future. It's going to be better for my kids. So I, th- I think the, the feeling now of, of immobility in a class that doesn't matter where I move, I don't have the right education. I can't get ahead. You know, that's sort of, that, that's the frustration I think that, and then you look around at all the forces that are pulling people down. Well, I mean, they say in the book, the, the social revolution of the 60s, which was a liberation for those equipped to deal with its freedoms, but a slow motion disaster for those Americans who lack the resources and social capital to rebound from illegitimacy, broken homes and failed marriages. Mm-hmm. That I was reading that. I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is what Murray was talking about. Yes. This is yeah. The, the exact thing. And the, yeah, that's the sort of thing that I think when they, they look at the cause of that, it's usually the left. And that, that's the sort of thing that will attract them to social conservatism. And it, it, most people, I think, start out pretty socially conservative just as a, as a base because that's, you know, it's rooted in tradition. It's rooted in, you know, just how things are. So it's a big opportunity for conservatives. And then we end up losing them for the various reasons that Douthat that and Zalam talk about. It's just we're not, we don't always speak to that issue in a way that, that helps people. Mm-hmm. Yes, they say uh, conservative Republicans are off, often seem disinterested in the working class plight, and I think I put a question mark on that because I think that's maybe that's true, but I think it's more true because of kind of what we talked about during the Soul episode, which is that conservative conservatives are focused on kind of that conservative vision as opposed to uh, identifying groups to you know, level to, yeah, yeah, you know, create, uh, individual opportunities or that sort of thing. But, but to a conversation we've had several times, you, you have raised that book what's the matter with Kansas, which at some point we better read, but yeah, which makes the argument that, that these, this, this group of people, the Sam's club Republicans, Reagan Democrats, they just get bamboozled into voting Republican against their economic interests. And I think what this book is telling us, and obviously what we got from Murray, is that, no, they actually care a lot about those cultural issues. And not just because they're getting, you know, lit up on on guns or whatever, clinging to their, their religion and guns, but because they view some of this disorder, some of this insecurity is created by family disintegration, you know, and a lack of um, civic engagement a lack of social cohesion and there there are true reasons for some of that some of it is we can't control you know some of it's globalization but some of it really is you know this uh sexual revolution that has an upside but the big downside is that people don't create and maintain stable families anymore yeah and th- th- these guys make the same point Murray did is that among upper class liberals they still do they're following all the old rules yeah they're doing all the stuff that they wouldn't demand anyone else to that they don't they don't want to judge they don't want to say oh you know follow us this is the way to do it the way upper class has done you know for all of human history Mm -hmm. but they do it and it works for them they're just unwilling to they don't have the courage of their convictions i guess they don't they're unwilling to say to people who aren't living that life, look, you're going down a bad path. That's not going to work for you because it usually doesn't. And it, well, we don't want to pass judgment, you know, right, it goes back you to know. relativism that, that pervades 
uh, on the left and in the elite media, you know, we can't possibly pass judgment on, on, uh, life choices. And it's crazy because you look around that, I mean, these are, I, mean, I guess we're, we're more, you and I are more members of that elite, even if we're not of their politics, but you know, as we're both lawyers who live in the suburbs and whatnot, and we look around at our neighborhoods and what do we see? Mostly married folks, you know, stable families, people who mm -hmm. work at their jobs, not, you know, not on benefits and it's working for them. You know, they're, a lot of them go to church. A lot of them are active in their community. You know, it's all the, all the things that conservatives say people should do. They do, but like in my neighborhood, these people are all act most, mostly, uh, Democrats. So they wouldn't tell anyone else to act that way, but boy, it's really working for them. You know, things are, things are good out here. Yeah. No, it's a great point because all that's true about where I live and including the fact that it's a, a D plus 21 district, you know, and it's super democratic, not a little bit, but a, yeah, deeply democratic. Yeah. Well, so, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about what they call the marriage gap. This is from chapter six. I say the most important factor for economic, social, and cultural stratification is working class Americans are far less likely to have stable families. Again, we talked about this with Murray and some of the reasons for that and some of the data that, that bears all that out. Most unmarried women, by the way, are not, they say, are not gay divorcees or hard-charging working girls, but less educated manicurists or housekeepers. So it's one thing if you are, you do have a career that you love or you're, you know, a lawyer or female or whatever, all that, that's good. And I think we, we give that the thumbs up, but most are not. Most, most are just barely scraping by, you know, they're a medical technician at the hospital making not much more than minimum wage, you know, let's say eight or $9 an hour. And when you don't have a husband, I mean, it makes it so much more difficult to pay the bills. And they say educated men are much more likely to marry while working class men are more likely to quote unquote, stay boys indefinitely, mm -hmm. basically play video games, play Fortnite until two in the morning and have somebody else more or less pay for their lives. 90% of cohabitants plan to get married someday, but the clear majority never will. They say old fashioned marriage offers the best guarantee of stability and prosperity of anything you can really do. Pick a social indicator, they say, and you'll find that parents and children alike do far better in stable families. We went through this with Murray. Men do better. Uh, kids do better. Just to put a fine point on it, they say whatever makes cohabitation semi-successful in Scandinavia, which the left will often point to, whatever it's, whatever's going on in Scandinavia, it doesn't exist here because <clears throat> yeah. that's not that, and that's borne out by the data. Yeah, whatever. When you study cohabitants, unmarried cohabitants over there, it's a, it's a different relationship than what than the average one here. I thought that was interesting because people always do say that, and I never had a good answer for it because I I mean I I know Europeans who are in such relationships they. They act for all the world like they're married, own a house together, have children together, live together for decades, but they're, they don't have that. There's no, no church, no city hall, no ring, you know, <clears throat> that's, and I, I know a few people in America like that, but more of the unmarried people with kids in America are the more coming and going kind of, you know, mm -hmm. this yeah, guy's, yeah. maybe they lived with this woman for a while and then, then leave and you know, and has a different kid with this woman and, you know, maybe they're shacked up too, but doesn't last, you know, it's that, it's that, that rootless, that sort of chaotic environment. So I don't know what, what's different about Europe. I mean, maybe it's that they're just, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's that they're fully atheist over there where we still have some church here. I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, I guess it comes down to the, just the idea that different countries are different. And I mean, that's, that's mm -hmm. something else we've talked about over the episodes what works in denmark might not work in america and it might not work in japan and you know because culture is something that exists but i thought that in quoting those studies i thought that really was useful because i never had a good answer for that either like why does it work in scandinavia i don't know but it does all right so they they point to a couple of the, the major issues facing the working class economic insecurity. This is kind of like the anxiety that we were talking about, like 
working class anxiety over healthcare, you know, their pensions, income volatility. And what I think what we mean by that is you have a really good job today, but could you get laid off or, you know, could the company like merge? And so there's changes and, and that's that economic security, that anxiety is the higher cause than, or the more uh, salient cause than, than what the elite media will say is, you know, inequality is what worries people. The fact is I would also, let's put this link up to Cal, but I would, I would refer listeners to this hidden tribes report from the more in common project, which is just fascinating that, you know, really breaks down the, the American electorate. And I think is very insightful. And basically it shows that it's really the liberals and really like progressive activists that care about inequality. Uh, moderates don't care. People in the middle don't care. And obviously no yep. conservatives are worried about it because inequality is an abstraction. What they're, what they're really worried about is their own instability of, you know, economic, you know, day to day. And in fact is the bulk of inequality can be attributed to experience and education. So, so really, you know, people are unequal because, well, they have a, they have a college degree and he, they say here a big and growing gap between there's a, there is a big and growing gap between those with college degrees and those without them. Again, we talked about this in length with Murray. There's also a big gap between those with college degrees and those with postgraduate degrees. That's also big and growing even faster. And so you and I are fortunate to have um, postgraduate degrees and everything, but there's, yeah, so that's where, that's where kind of the gap is created. But on a, on a day-to-day, like, what am I worried about if I'm working class? You know, they don't sit back and worry about the fact that, that Mark Zuckerberg is a billionaire. You know, it's, they're, they're, they, they look to their neighbor and say, why is their neighbor getting ahead or, and I'm not, you know, type of thing. Yeah, I, th- I think the inequality so. argument is more just about straight envy, which I think most people don't. I think most people don't feel that as much. I don't, I mean... Or, or self, so sorry to cut you off, but, or like sort of, you know, guilt and self-loathing, mm-hmm. because again, I think this is a phenomenon of the, of the hyperactive, uh, liberal Yeah, it's left. true. It's, it is probably people and, and at the top media. who are more concerned about inequality. That's a good point. You know, it's, it, it, they're the ones who are unequally well off and they're the ones mm-hmm. who are neurotic about it. Yeah, you're right. It's not just envy. I mean, I think people at the bottom who feel that might be envious of the of the Zuckerbergs and stuff. I think most people don't care that Zuckerberg's a billionaire. They don't. They might not like Facebook, but they don't. He's not taking money out of my pocket. Yeah, they're more fascinated by the lifestyles of the rich and famous, anyway. Yeah, you know, like yeah, you're, you're a billionaire. Okay, give us a show. <laughs> you can watch yeah. your life. <laughs> yeah. All right, so then they move into this uh, what they call the trouble with meritocracy, and I think this is really interesting because again, mm-hmm. this is Murray. They say native intelligence and academic merit still lift the boats of numerous poor students, but that academic achievement also is bound up in social class. So, you know, Murray makes a very strong, very strong and compelling argument, at least to me, that, uh, that America is becoming stratified by cognitive ability. And it is, it really is the fact that these guys marry each other and then they have smart kids, but it is, again, you made this point during that podcast and we'll these guys make it here in this book that that's also bound up into social class and like pushing your kids to, to do well and to study and, and at least squeezing them all of their ability out of them versus, uh, you know, a a less fortunate family, less educated, you know, they might not have the, the know-how or wherewithal to push their kids to get into a, you know, get into college and get it, get into a career that's, that's going to provide and help them, you know, climb the ladder and that sort of thing. But the, here's the, here's the real kicker though. They say meritocracy co-ops the brightest working class Americans and incorporates them into the upper class. And this is what we would shorthand as the mm-hmm. brain drain. I think this is a real issue. You know, I mean, if you live in a rural community and you're pretty smart, you're going to go to college. And now, now you enter into the college sorting system. You know, you marry someone who's not from your town and you're more likely maybe not even from your state. And so you're probably going to move and more, more likely than not, you're going to move to an urban area where you can get a better paying job and, and have a more um, successful career. And so then 
it's not just that that a lot of smart you know people or successful people live in the in urban areas it's also that we're going to take your best and brightest rural kids too because let's say she goes to college and you know meets someone gets married then she goes to law school is she going back to that small town well yeah. probably not and so it becomes this uh brain drain and, and that's what they they could they label this the the trouble with meritocracy yeah it's um it is something it's uh, something i i i'd hoped that the uh, the rise of telecommuting and virtual offices would arrest a bit but it doesn't seem to have stopped at all maybe it's just people like cities there's a lot to offer you know but it's it's depressing and it's not just america i was reading about scandinavia earlier this week this you know and denmark has this same problem that their their farming towns are mm. being deserted because everyone goes to copenhagen that's where the jobs are nobody wants and then even mm -hmm. people who want to open you know a, a good business outside the city they have trouble getting people and i think that's true here too you know if you if some some uh, law firm or whatever wanted to say well we're gonna we're gonna put our headquarters in lancaster instead of in washington or philadelphia or new york are you gonna get the same you're gonna get the same people it's like uh, like murray was talking about with uh with maytag in newton yeah iowa i think it was it's like it, they have trouble getting people in des moines let alone this little town outside of you know hours from des moines so yeah, yeah. even when people try and work against it, their, their societal trends of just the, the ever present drain of, uh, of top talent by whatever measure. And so then, uh, as a corollary to that, and this is something Murray did not talk about and something we haven't talked about too much, which, which is they call the trouble with immigration. Mm -hmm. So as meritocracy pulls the mass upper class upward, mass immigration threatens to pull the working class downward. This is something that Democrats don't understand and that which was highlighted in clear and present, obvious to everyone during the, the this first Democrat debates, which we had uh, earlier this week or last week. So just to give you some statistics, just 8% of second generation Mexican-Americans obtained a bachelor's degree with white people. That's 30%. Mexican immigration accounts for 60% of the increase in the uninsured health insurance, 34%. That's a, th a third of households use a major welfare program. You know, that's, mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's big versus, uh, 15% of the regular popular, of the native born American population, 29% rely on Medicaid versus 12% of native population. And, uh, to a statistic that that we hear all the time because of Trump's um, border policies. First generation immigrants from the southern border do commit less crime in first generation. Now the problem is the children and grandchildren commit crimes at much higher rates than than the population. So the first generation, they just get here. Second generation, that's when you're you know you're dealing with inner city and poverty and again and and, and more crime and and that sort of thing. And yeah, I, I don't think these guys are particularly nativist. I mean, S Salam is himself the son of immigrants. Um, mm -hmm. And they say uh, immigrants, they say, aren't just the cause of growing inequality. They're inequality's victims as well. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that shows, yeah, because, I mean, the folks come here and they don't have elite education. Their chances of getting ahead compared to the immigrants of 100 years ago are lower. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. where they, they talk about immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe that were coming here about a hundred years ago had more opportunities to get into the middle class and they, you know, on average earned less than a native born American, but it wasn't that much less, you know, cause there were, there were more, there were more jobs and opportunities available for people without college, without high school, even, you know, so not only is, is mass immigration and mass illegal immigration diluting a labor market that's already struggling it, it's it's they themselves you know the jobs that they are taking if you want to call it that are not the jobs of you know elite urban college educated folks they're taking the jobs that folks who don't have that elite education or take or would normally have right and these guys even point out that the the group that's 
probably suffers most from from illegal immigration is actually African Americans. Yeah, the the data show. I mean, right this very moment, our economy is doing so well that if you want a job, you can get a job, and so it's less, maybe a slightly less of a pressing issue. But that can't go on forever, and there will be peaks and, and valleys in the cycle. They point out, which I think is really true, you know, today's economic climate is far less favorable to assimilation than earlier times in America, where you could just go go out and strike it because, you know, you need education. You know, we have this globalized economy where it, it takes education in order to get ahead. And, and again, just 8% of second generation Mexican-American immigrants can ab- obtain a bachelor's degree. And Robert Putnam, this is a book that we're going to have to read at some point, The Bowling Alone. Mm-hmm. They they point out, and this is something I already knew, which is that Putnam did that re- groundbreaking research earlier, but he didn't want to release it because he didn't, he didn't love the results, which was that more diversity means less civic cohesion, less civic cooperation, and, and more mistrust. And it's not necessarily because of the immigrants themselves that's not what i think but you know i i live in a pretty immigrant immigrant heavy area of all different stripes and uh, you know all different countries of, of origin and it's just difficult to get really get to know your neighbors i mean frankly it's we 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 try really hard we do but it's just much easier to get to know the you know the native uh, American, not, not Indian, but, but, right. uh, the native born Americans Here's something <laughs> that Put- it is to get to know. Something that Putnam said about that study really struck me too, is he said, it's not just that we don't trust people who are not like us. Putnam remarked in diverse communities. We don't trust people who do look like us. And I thought that was pretty crazy. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, cause yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, part of that, part of that is I think just urban life too, because that's where the most sort of mixed neighborhoods are. And I think people view cities as a place where you don't trust everyone, you know, where there's, there's a lot of shady characters around. So, I mean, I, I don't, I wonder how much of that is just the nature of cities, the nature of, yeah. because people are coming from everywhere, you know, you didn't, didn't grow up with them. You didn't grow up there yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the idea that, that, that it's, it's not just that people are being like racist. Like, they, Oh, I don't trust that guy. He's not, it's not from here. They don't even trust people who are from here. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, a, that's kind of, that's kind of wild. Um, and it, it also kind of leads to the point that Douth and Salam make about what we call suburban sprawl, which I, I kind of don't like that term, but whatever, that's what we call it. And he said that people out, you know, we, we're told that these are communities where people just drive in and drive out and they don't really talk to each other and everyone's alienated from his neighbor, but there's actually more social trust in and more social involvement in suburban and exurban neighborhoods than in urban Mm -hmm. neighborhoods. And that, that surprised me too, because all you ever hear is, is really that, that sort of malign vision of suburbs as bedroom communities, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's just Mm -hmm. a place we crash. It's not a place we live, you know? Yeah. That was well. I can speak to this personally. I mean, there's no question about it. So I, we live in a suburb, which you could call sprawl. You know, part of the reason that there's there's more volunteering, you know, more time with neighbors, more time with friends, more belonging to clubs and social groups. Well, it happens here because this is where basically stable families are going to live. <laughs> and if you're, I mean, I have endless numbers of friends who live in the city, and they tend to be more upscale. They tend to be more. They want to you know, do the, the highfalutin bar scene and that kind of thing. And they don't have kids, either they're single or they're just, just a couple um, without kids or very young kids, or they stick with the nanny. And it's just a very different lifestyle where here, you know, we're playing basketball with the neighbors. We're in little league, you know, all these different groups. And yeah, it's very different. I mean, that's, I think living in the city would be really fun, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make any sense at all for our kids. It's the same here. Right. I mean, I live in an older suburb. It's, it's really the first place I've come to know my neighbors and, you know, cause everyone has kids. And so they interact with each other. So you have to interact with their parents at some point. And yeah, right. You know, and in a good way, you get to know people. It's hard, Once you're out of school, it's kind of hard to make new friends as an adult, you know, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe you meet somebody at work become friendly but you know 
yeah, the idea of when the whole family, when the whole block is families, when the whole neighborhood's families for the most part, you know, it's, it does spur that kind of interaction because kids will just go and make friends with each other. You know, they'll meet somebody that day, they're friends, mm-hmm. you know, how it is with yeah. little kids, especially. And, uh, it's a good thing. So, I mean, when you look at it that way, what, what these guys are saying makes sense. It's just, it definitely flies in the face of what we've been told over and over again about the crushing boringness of suburban life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm busy all the time. It's not that boring out here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If we could just get rid of the commute, everything else. Would be yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. So what are their policy prescriptions? We said, we said that we were going to talk about um, some policy prescriptions. They say they want family friendly tax reform, keep taxes lowest for, for young families. So they, they say expand the child tax credit from 1000 to 5,000 and index for wages and give subsidies to parents who provide child care in the home. Give pension credits for household labor. That'd be great. You know, Yeah. my, my mom stayed home most of my uh, growing up years and, and she's not going to get social security and except for now she's, you know, getting her quarters, uh, tuition credits for years spent rearing children, you know, for like stay at home moms, expand the earned income tax credit, uh, wage subsidies. Uh, so that's some of the family friendly tax and here, here's, here's more specifics. And, and I want to make a point after this. Keep taxes lowest for those entering the workforce and young families. Eliminate the payroll tax for workers making less than the median income. Make the payroll tax more progressive. But even better, replace the payroll tax with a consumption tax. Now, that would be good because that would actually hit the baby boomers. And yeah. I'll, I'll talk about that in just one sec. But a generous personal deduction, a generous child tax credit, limit the mortgage deduction to low-income families, and eliminate the state and local tax deduction. The reason, the reason I'm reading these quickly because a lot of these, a good portion of them, they came to fruition in the uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the tax reform from 2017. So that expanded the child tax credit to $2,000 and uh, provided, uh, it, it eliminated the state and local deduction. Well, it didn't completely eliminate it, but it, it capped it mm-hmm. and it capped the mortgage deduction for everyone. So it made, basically, it uh, turned it into a middle class deduction. And you have these Democrat states like uh, New York, New Jersey, and even Pennsylvania, sorry, are like all pissed off because they're the ones who make a lot of money and have these really expensive houses. And they, especially they live in urban areas in their house. It's really expensive, like our, you know, like DC area. Mm-hmm. And by capping the state and local, by capping the mortgage deduction and also state and local, those are the people who get hit. <laughs> so, yeah, so. no, and, and you're you're right that so much of this has made it into the into the current tax law. I mean, the, the stuff about the payroll tax hasn't, and I'm not really sold on that myself. I think this simplicity. Yeah, that would be rough because it would probably bankrupt Social Security. Yeah, and it would also mean anyway. you'd have to file a separate return for Social Security, or yeah, at right, least right. it it would be more any, any kind of progress progressiveness in a tax code means a, means a new return. Or a new section on the return because yet because you can't just take a percent every week and have it match at the end of the year because it, it depends on how much mm, you yeah, make over the course yeah. of the whole year. So yeah, that always right. that's more work for people in, our, in an already complicated tax code. So I, I kind of like the that's way right. the Social Security is now, although they make the point one that I, I think for most people when you learn this it sounds insane is that you don't pay Social Security tax in income you make over about a hundred thousand. It's it's actually a regressive tax in that way. And you don't get more benefits for that money either. So that's, that's the justification is that you're only getting social security benefits based on what you make up to that 102, 104, whatever it is, it's indexed for inflation, but you're not paying taxes either. So a guy who's making a million dollars a year is only paying the same social security tax, the same number of dollars as a guy who's making 110,000 a year. Of course, the rationale behind that is that Social Security is not a tax. Right. It's, a, it's an insurance policy. It's a, sure. It's an insurance. Yeah. It's a pension program, more or less. And Which so is, I mean, you, you it's pay never in been and true. you get it back out. Yeah. yeah. That's that's never been true. But that that's one of the things that they talk about. And it's it's pretty crazy when you think about it. That I'm, I'm, it's one of the things I'm surprised that Democrats don't bring up more because that's the sort of thing they would hate. Right. Yeah, a tax that yeah. only hits you know, the poor, the middle class and the upper middle class, but not the, not the really rich. Like that's, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that's kind of wild. 
but yeah, a lot of these a lot of these tax reforms did make it into the law, and that's and that's a good thing. But uh, as we were talking about before the show, the Republicans did a pretty terrible job of communicating that. Yeah. So all we hear about is anymore. the fact that the top rate went down and that corporations are paying less. We don't we don't hear about yeah, I mean, how the average something like eighty percent of people are paying less too. That's right, and and basically, you know, you're you got a tax cut unless you are dinks, you know, like du- dual income, no kids, you know, you're you're both lawyers or something, you both have uh, professional jobs, and you're you know you're you're both making you know one hundred fifty thousand or more a year, and so your combined income is you know two fifty to five hundred thousand or something like that, and uh, you know you're living in a an expensive house, maybe in an expensive area. Those people got dinged, yep. but frankly, I don't have any sympathy for them. So. Yeah, because a lot of them are a lot of them are voting for politicians who say the rich should pay more. Yeah, exactly. So, so there you go. You you, you get to yeah. do it. You're welcome. But just basically, everyone else got a tax cut, and everyone who makes under a hundred thousand dollars got a tax cut. I absolutely guarantee. That. I I could yeah so, I could go on about tax policy all you know for the whole hour. That's because that's my background, but. In the interest of oh, good. We need to read a tax book then, because I, I do it too. So we'll have to we'll have to yeah. do that. Uh, that. That would be fun. But I want to say real quick, they say their the, their best policy would be to replace the payroll tax with a federal consumption tax. I mean, this has been talked about not replacing the payroll tax, but pay, uh, replacing um, federal income tax with a consumption tax. I like this idea because, uh, as a friend of mine always brings up, like it's a great way for the baby boomers to give back what they've taken from us. <laughs> you know because a consumption tax would really hit these guys who have nothing to do but, you know, golf and buy things off of Amazon. You know, they're not working, so they don't have a lot of, they don't have income to tax. And instead, you know, we just, we just tax their cruise, <laughs> cruise ship vacations mm-hmm. and, and all that. And it would be a way for them to finally give back all that they've taken from us. It's So I give a thumbs up. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm wary of of consumption taxes, the difficulty of uh, administration. Although I mean, that's kind of, I mean, tariffs are kind of a consumption tax on foreign goods too. Yeah. So there's, there's some overlap there um, between, you know, the, because they, they don't really get into trade protection at all in this. And that's partly because they wrote it in 2008 and no one was talking about trade protection back then, mm-hmm. except, you know, Pat Buchanan maybe. Yeah, that's which right. is and he's and he's kind of in a different wing of the party than these guys. Bernie was probably talking about it. <laughs> he talks about a lot of old ideas. And yeah, so they talk about healthcare, and they they mention this was prior to the Amer- uh, Affordable Care Act about Obamacare, and so they mentioned they mentioned that what they really need is a plan like the Mitt Romney plan in Massachusetts, <laughs> which is <laughs> right basically the ACA. So they got what they wanted there you know, for better or worse. And Hmm. I don't know what, what they would say about the ACA now. Maybe they like it. I actually don't know, but they, then they talk about another program would be in for crime, you know, hire thousands of new police officers to reduce crime and create working class jobs. And they call this kind of a a populist, a conservative populist move because we need more police officers and it would reduce crime and it would create jobs. So it's a win, 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 win. Just got to figure out how to pay for it, but <laughs> yeah, like so many win-win-win policies, it's great except what about the price tag? Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, crime has been declining since the seventies across the board. So yeah, I mean, yeah, people yeah. worry about it more, but there's actually less of it. Yeah, less crime. And for immigration, they they say tightening the labor market by reducing competition from abroad is the only way to help the native native born. What we need is increased spending for border border control, and you got to reduce the immigration rate before we start thinking about legalizing and uh, giving green cards or or even citizenship to to the folks who are already here. So that's pretty well in line with a lot of the more center right. I mean, not not the Freedom Caucus, not the far right, but most conservatives are in this in this bucket, which is. Yeah, we can have DACA. We can have, you know, let's find a way to give status to the people who are already here. But first, let's secure the border. This, this is the kind of immigration policy that would be requ- that would be required in order to get a deal done. I, I think that uh, Dalthat and and Salam are 
I mean, they have their head in the right place. Uh, and I think Salam recently wrote an entire book about immigration um, mm, yeah. that expands on these views. I haven't read it, but I've, I've seen people talking about it. So I know that's his, that's one of the areas that he focuses on. Yeah. What? And, and include employer sanctions, you know, raids on employers to crack down so, so that you can have, maybe stop the, uh, the demand side. Yeah. And they talk about a great example of that as, uh, you know, when, a there was an, there was a, a raid of a, uh, what was it, a chicken processing company in Georgia where mm-hmm. they, most of their workforce was illegal. They got raided. People got sent home and they're, you know, they're saying, Oh, you know, how are we going to do business? And we heard this recently with some of the, uh, the crab picking companies on the Eastern shore of Maryland. Oh, we can't, we can't do business without immigrants, illegal or legal. And then all of a sudden, you know, this, they, they point out this firm said, all right, well, I guess we'll have to look for people. And they found them, you know, how about that? They found, they found people <laughs> right there in Georgia yeah, and they had to, you know, they had to bust people in and build workers housing sometimes, but you know, it, that's the thing. I mean, you see companies say they can't find anybody, but they don't want to make the effort. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to look hard for anyone they don't you know they just live in a this this utopian libertarian idea of well i'll just hang out the help wanted sign and the market will deliver me workers and i'll pick the cheapest ones and then everybody's happy but a little effort you know of recruiting and you know maybe making the maybe paying more you know because you gotta you know in an economy like ours there actually is competition for labor so, you know, it, yeah, there's not enough to go around, even with the illegal immigrants. Yeah, but if you pay a little more, you also might increase labor force participation. A lot of people who are on the sidelines might say, "Yeah, for that for that price, I will get back in." Yeah, so I, I, I think it, they make the point, and and people have made it sense that if you make the if you get employers to make the effort, if you enforce the immigration laws, not even change them, just enforce them, uh, people will find work, and the jobs will still get done. It just like it might cost a little more. All right, so one last one last uh, policy space where it says we're so late here. They they call this unbundling academia. I wanted to hit this because I think that it's this goes to some of our cultural issues too. But change affirmative action to class based instead of race based. You know, fo- have a focus on rural white kids as well as you know black kids in the inner city. Reward public colleges that graduate larger numbers of low-income students. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Slash funding for flagship universities where the upper middle class gets to go. <laughs> of course, I'm like, no, <laughs> uh, because it benefits potentially yeah. us. All right. Hike the spending for community colleges. I'm 100% behind that. I think that community colleges and let's let's stop thinking that every kid is going to go to a four-year degree or that has to because they're not going to. And uh, there are so many jobs in for electricians, for machinists, for welders, for plumbing. I mean, these jobs will pay. I mean, I, you could be a starting plumber and make sixty thousand dollars a year. After a few years, you're going to make over a hundred thousand. That's just the, the facts of the matter. And there's not enough to go around. You make so that with no. With, let's get these kids. You're through. making that with no student loans, too. Yeah, with no student loans. So, so you get to keep that money. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I would, I would definitely support more money in, in community colleges. Yeah, me too. Bonuses for schools that boost graduation rates. And they don't say this, but I would say this, like schools need skin in the game. You know, you, you get to, we have this, this bottomless pit of federal loans that can be taken out. So it's just creates incentive for schools to hike tuition through the moon because they know that the kids will be able to pay for it through loans, but then they'll be saddled with those loans for the next 25 or 30 years. Instead, let's say, Hey, these kids, they're not getting jobs and they're not able to, and they're you know, defaulting on their loans. Maybe, well, the school has to have some skin in the game and has to take some of that. I think that's especially true for private schools that, that charge so freaking much. Yeah. I, I wrote about this for the Federalist a few months ago, just that, um, that school should be made to guarantee the loan. Hmm. <laughs> good. <laughs> not not the co-signer, good, but you know, if the loan goes into default, they're the guarantor. And I think that would produce immediate reduction in tuitions. Oh, I love it. And it might even produce reductions in tuitions based on major because they know the chemical engineer has a lot better chance of getting a job than the poetry major. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, so why do they charge like... the same for both degrees? Yeah. I mean, no disrespect. I love poetry, but you know, 
Yeah, but gender the, studies the, majors are not going out and getting jobs. I mean, the yeah. an electrician is. <laughs> the engineer is going to get paid. He's going to pay his loans because he's going to have a job. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's there's a lot. I like a lot of what they're saying there is that this system of just funneling free guaranteed money to the universities, they're going to get theirs whether they the kid graduates or not, whether he's educated or not. It's a, it's a crazy system of just divorcing the incentive, the risk and the reward are in completely different directions. And that never works out. Yeah. 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 All right. We are super duper late. What's your final word? Well, I, I, I think these guys are, what they're, what they were talking about in 2008, people are talking about even more now. I think they were kind of ahead of the curve on that. And there's a lot of people who are conservative in many ways, but aren't libertarian conservative. And to see that government, when the government makes no choice, they're making a choice. So maybe they should actually make a choice and encourage people in a direction that would benefit them in the long term in terms of the cultural disintegration that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So I think these guys are these guys are sort of putting a vision out there of something I'd like to see, which is Trumpism without Trump. You know, the sort of... Yeah. What's bringing people into the Republican Party? What do they like about Trump? What's good about Trump without necessarily all the, you know, access Hollywood type paraphernalia that associates with him, you know, without the mm-hmm. without the weirdness. What are the policy mm-hmm. issues that he's gesturing at that people are really resonating with? And a lot of that's here. A lot of that's about halting cultural disintegration, bringing people up giving restoring that social mobility and social you know security not not the program social security but the the thing the idea of societal security that has been kind of falling down for the past few decades so i mm-hmm. i like what they're getting at here i don't like every single policy prescription but i i, li- I like a lot of it and i think it's uh it's a branch of conservatism that we're going to have to reckon with yeah, I could quibble with uh, some of their policy prescriptions, but I would say that you know, ha- you know, again, I work in the space, and I think that this is a actually really is a recipe for success and political success because I think it, I think most of this stuff would sell and sell very well, and that's why we had a Bill Clinton presidency. That's why we had a George W. Bush presidency, and I think that's why we have a Trump presidency now. I think that a lot of this stuff does sell. Like overall, a lot of these folks. Who, who can be swing voters or can be brought to vote for, for the first time. They, what they do want is I think to be heard and to have some of these issues like addressed. And I mean, the trouble with most of these policies is they, they will help on the margins, but very few, you know, it's, it's very difficult again, going back to our you know conservative disposition. It's very difficult to actually solve these problems. You can, you can nibble at them on, on the edges, but it's probably not going to you know, make a huge amount of difference. <laughs> and so that's, that's what makes it a little bit more difficult because I think Republicans have fallen into this trap. And certainly with, uh, with during the George W. Bush years is that you, you overpromise a lot of things and Democrats uh, get this all the time. I mean, they, they make these big promises and, and they, it's very difficult to deliver in our system. But anyway, that's it for, uh, for these guys. And for next time, we're going to read capitalism, socialism, and democracy a book by Joseph Schumpeter, published in 1942. So catch us then. Thanks.